Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Kim Everett Kirk was born January 12, 1970, and was one of three daughters. She met David Neil Cox through a friend at work around the year 2000, and initially he was a nice guy. They quickly married, and he became a stepfather to Kim's two daughters, and the couple went on to have two sons together. Cox was a truck driver, but following a back injury and a prescription for painkillers, he left the workforce and qualified for disability. He then became addicted to meth and started abusing Kim. Due to the drugs, his behavior and personality had suddenly changed. At some point, Cox had even gone as far as manufacturing his own meth. In 2009, when her daughter Lindsay confessed to her mother that Cox had been sexually assaulting her for a few years, Kim finally decided to divorce him. But this instilled fear into Kim, and she made plans for her and the kids to take refuge at a women's shelter out of fear that Cox would retaliate. Kim took the children and left, and pressed charges against Cox, and when deputies arrived to the home, Cox was arrested for statutory rape, sexual battery, and child abuse. They also found the precursors to make meth. Kim, still deathly afraid of her estranged husband, moved her and the children in with her sister, Christy Salmon. While in the county jail, he told other prisoners that if he ever got out, he would kill his wife. However, unable to raise bond money, he remained in jail for nine months. During that time, he often made threatening phone calls and would tell her he was coming for her. Suddenly, in April 2010, his bond was significantly reduced, allowing him to raise enough funds to get out. The family only learned he had been released when a friend saw him on the street and called Kim. She then went to the Chancery Court and got protective orders against him in Lee, Pontotoc, and Union Counties. Now that he was out, he would sometimes drive by her home and point his finger at her and simulate a gun. Then about 7 p.m. on May 14, 2010, tragedy would strike. 12-year-old Lindsay was sitting on the couch while her mom's sister, Aunt Christy, was cooking dinner and one of her brothers was playing basketball outside. Her mother, Kim, was in the back of the house preparing a bath for her youngest son. That's when Cox shot through the screen door of the home in Sherman, Mississippi, before barging inside and ordering Lindsay not to move. He then chased her aunt out of the house. He then found Kim and shot her twice. Her youngest son would frantically run to a closet. Meanwhile, Aunt Christy called Kim's parents and told them what was happening. 
Cox called her parents and told them it was all their fault he was arrested and he had planned to kill all of them. Kim's father and stepmother, Benny and Melody Kirk, then had to serve as negotiators on the phone with Cox. They could hear Cox taunting Kim as she was dying and belittling her and said he wanted to sit there and watch her suffer. Kim was able to talk on the phone briefly to her father while she lay on the floor bleeding to death and said, Daddy, I'm dying. She was still hanging on to life at midnight. He had barricaded the four of them inside the home and physically and mentally tortured the family and told law enforcement he planned to kill the children and then himself. When he stopped talking to law enforcement at 3.23 a.m., officers stormed the house and arrested him. Kim was sadly already deceased. During those nearly nine hours of holding the children hostage, Cox sexually assaulted his stepdaughter, Lindsay, three times in front of her dying mother, even as police surrounded the home. Two years later, he pleaded guilty to capital murder, kidnapping, and several other felonies related to the standoff and was sentenced to death. He then began years of appealing his conviction and sentence. He then made plans to waive his appeals and proceed with the execution, which infuriated Lindsay as she wanted him to sit in prison and reflect on what he did to her and her family. Lindsay has allowed her name to be made public to tell her story. On November 17, 2021, 50-year-old Cox died by lethal injection at the Mississippi State Penitentiary and Lindsay, now 23, was there to witness it. He became the first Mississippi inmate to be put to death in nine years. In the days prior to his scheduled execution, Cox made a shocking confession. He said that he had been the one that killed his sister-in-law, Felicia Cox, who was married to his brother. On November 19th, two days after his execution, his attorneys hand-delivered a letter in which Cox confessed to the murder and gave details of where her body is located. Felicia had been missing since July 2nd, 2007, after making a visit to Kim and David Cox's home. Her remains were found where he said they'd be, in Pontotoc County, on his family's former property. He had been a person of interest in Felicia's disappearance, but authorities had no evidence at the time. Kim's father and stepmother raised Lindsay and her two younger brothers after Kim's death, and one of his sons still has fear that he will come after them, even knowing that he is no longer breathing the air that he didn't deserve. Anna Mariah Wilson was born on May 18, 1996, in Littleton, New Hampshire, to Eric and Karen Wilson. She grew up in Kirby, Vermont, and went by Mo, and was a gifted multi-sport athlete. She was the captain of her high school soccer team and was a nationally ranked junior skier, placing third in the 2013 U.S. Junior National Championship downhill event. After college, she transitioned from skiing to biking, and at the age of 25, she was a professional bike racer and worked as a demand planner for Specialized. She enjoyed cooking, writing, and traveling, especially to Italy. She recently excelled at gravel racing, a relatively new category of cycling that some consider a hybrid of road cycling and mountain biking. On May 10, 2022, a profile in Bello News referred to her as the winningest woman in the American off-road scene. 
The next day, May 11, 2022, Moe was preparing to compete in the 157-mile Gravel Locos bike race in Texas. She was staying with a friend in Austin, Texas, while preparing for the upcoming race in Heiko. She told her friend she was going for an afternoon swim, but she didn't go alone. Cyclist Colin Strickland joined her, and the two would have dinner together afterwards. Colin would then drop Mo back at her friend's house. That's where the story takes a horrible turn. Colin's girlfriend, 35-year-old Caitlin Marie Armstrong, was apparently jealous of Mo and Colin's relationship. Armstrong had even confronted Mo before and told her to stay away from Colin. After Colin dropped Mo off, Armstrong would allegedly shoot Mo to death inside of her friend's home. Armstrong had been suspicious of Colin cheating on her with Mo for several months. However, Colin told police that he and Mo were only briefly romantically involved in the fall of 2021, but only while he and Armstrong were temporarily broken up. He said after that, Mo and him remained friends, and their relationship became completely platonic and professional. Her loved ones said they had no reason to believe that she was romantically involved with anyone when she was killed. Six days after the murder, police issued a homicide warrant for Armstrong. Following Moe's killing, police located two handguns in the home Collins shared with Armstrong, which matched the spent shell casing found at the murder scene. Armstrong's car was also seen on surveillance camera near the crime scene prior to the shooting. Somehow, Armstrong was able to obtain a fraudulent passport and would use this to flee the country. She would fly from Texas to New York and then fly from the Newark International Airport to Costa Rica. She was on the run for 43 days until she was found and arrested on June 29, 2022 at a hostel on Santa Teresa Beach in Costa Rica. Investigators discovered that before she fled Austin, Texas, she sold her Jeep Grand Cherokee to a CarMax dealership. Also, while Armstrong was on the run, she cut her hair and dyed it dark brown and wore a bandage on her nose, claiming she had a surfboarding accident. Collins states that he has a lot of regret and torture knowing that this horrible crime was so close to him. As of June 30, 2022, she is being detained in Costa Rica on an immigration violation until she is deported back to Texas to face murder charges and unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Michelle Kosky was born in 1973 and was said to love animals and enjoyed playing Super Mario Brothers. At the age of 17, she was still in high school and living in Seattle Lake, Washington in the 13,300 block of 30th Avenue Northeast with her 28-year-old boyfriend. She had plans to attend college the next fall and was working at Taco Bell. On August 18, 1990, she called her mother, Violet Simonson, and agreed to come back home and stay at her and her stepfather's house to take care of the dog while her mother and stepfather went on a trip out of town. Before going to her parents' house, she visited an apartment earlier in the day in the 6200 block of 14th Avenue Northwest, Seattle, and then was given a ride back to her apartment. At some point, though, she was given a ride to an area in Snohomish County where teens were known to hang out, drink, and ride motorcycles. While there, things would take a terrible turn and she would end up missing. 
A week later, on August 25, 1990, a woman walking her dog near Echo Lake Road and Highway 522 stumbled upon a female's lifeless body. The finding was in Snohomish, Washington, not far from where Michelle went missing. It was determined that the body belonged to Michelle and she had tragically been sexually assaulted and murdered. Investigators said that whoever committed the crime used pieces of concrete from a nearby pile to finish her off. Her live-in boyfriend was initially a person of interest, but would ultimately be ruled out as a suspect. Around the time Michelle's body was found, the Green River Killer had been terrorizing the Seattle area for about a decade, and Seattle investigators considered a serial killer to be a possibility. But sadly, with no concrete evidence pointing at anyone, the case would go cold for the next three decades. In 2005, a cold case team reopened her case, and over the next 10 years, they would comb through several possible suspects, but they were all ruled out by DNA comparison. In 2012, the detective on the case stated that what likely happened was the person probably intended to have sex with her, but she didn't want to, and when she tried to flee, he ran her down and strangled her. In 2021, Parabon Nanolabs would take the DNA sample, but their process would be extended because they had to deconvolute the DNA sample because it contained the DNA from both the suspect and victim, which makes it a tedious and challenging process. Then, genetic genealogist Deb Stone spent about nine more months building a family tree and entering her findings into public genealogy websites, including Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. From her home in Oregon, she then found two likely suspects, which were two brothers, and these names were provided to the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office to finish the investigation to determine which one was the likely killer. State and county crime labs compared the crime scene samples to one of the brothers' DNA, revealing they were the same person and the DNA was a match. 32 years after her murder, on June 30, 2022, the sheriff's office announced they had identified the killer as Robert Anthony Brooks. Authorities say Brooks was 23 at the time and had been released from prison four months before the murder and was living with a relative only a few blocks from Michelle. Authorities did not say for what he was previously convicted of, but it was reportedly a juvenile conviction. During his life, he was never on detectives' radar in her case, and it's unclear how and when she crossed paths with Brooks. But this waste of space wouldn't face justice for Michelle's senseless murder because he died of natural causes at the age of 48 in King County, Washington in 2016. Michelle's mother told TV news crews she was grateful there would be no trial and said other families waiting for answers should take this case to heart and wait for the technology as it's getting better every day and pretty soon none of those bad guys will be able to hide. In August 2019, employees of McKnight Tire in Columbia, Missouri, found a small backpack hidden inside of a tire along the tree line at the edge of the store's parking lot. Upon checking it, they made a gruesome discovery. In the backpack was the decomposing remains of a full-term female infant, which was mostly bones. 
Due to the state of decomposition, the initial autopsy was unable to determine the cause of death or how long the child may have been there. The Columbia Police Department investigated many leads over the next few years, but were unable to determine what happened to the infant and who her parents were. In September of 2020, Columbia Police Department partnered with Othram to use advanced DNA testing to develop new leads that might help identify the infant. A DNA Solves crowdfund was established to cover the cost of testing for the case. Othram was able to build a comprehensive genealogical profile for the infant. Meanwhile, on June 14, 2022, a letter that had been found years earlier in a wallet hidden behind a drawer at a local Super 8 hotel was released to authorities. When it was first discovered in 2019, the hotel employee didn't know the significance of the disturbing letter. It was then placed in a drawer in Lost and Found, where it remained until news of the discovery of the remains hit the news. It appeared to have been written by the mother of the infant and was intended for the police department. By calling the police and alerting them to the letter, the hotel employee really helped the case despite holding on to it for years. A genetic genealogist built a family tree based on the DNA and was able to give law enforcement a possible identification of the baby and her parents. On June 28, 2022, the Columbia Police Department announced that the baby had been identified as Simone J. Daniels. She was four to five months old when she died at the nearby hotel and her remains had been inside the tire since 2017. Her parents were arrested the same day as the press conference released the baby's identity. The letter left at the hotel was the key to solving the mystery. 30-year-old Stephon Fountain of St. Joseph was charged with first-degree murder and abandonment of a corpse, and 28-year-old Lavasha Daniels of St. Louis was charged with abandonment of a corpse and first-degree endangering the welfare of a child. The letter allegedly written by Daniels states that she had completed her shift at People Ready where she had been working on construction projects. She claims that after coming home, Fountain fed the baby before going to bed and when Daniels woke up, she discovered her daughter in an odd posture with a towel around her neck and blood in her mouth. She claimed they both attempted CPR before she panicked and ran away while Fountain placed the baby in a backpack and left it at McKnight Tire. According to records, state identity cards were also discovered within the wallet that was left at the hotel. As a last note, Simone wasn't their only child. They actually have several other children together. On December 8, 1993, Valerie Brock found the lifeless body of a baby boy in her backyard in a rural area of Hugo, Oklahoma, and called authorities. The medical examiner would determine that the baby was born alive and then murdered. Now a homicide case, Choctaw County Sheriff's Office brought in OSBI agents to help. Agents conducted numerous interviews in the aftermath of the baby's death, including interviewing 25-year-old Meonia Michelle Allen, who was working for Brock and dating Brock's son. Despite the investigation, no suspects in the homicide were identified. The case went cold, but investigators retained samples of the boy's DNA for future use, and he became known as Baby Boy Hugo. 
Baby Boy Hugo's case captured the hearts of many in rural Oklahoma with locals raising money to give him a proper burial. He was buried in January 1994 in Babyland, a section of Mount Olivet Cemetery reserved for infants who'd passed away. Fast forward to October 2020 when an OSBI agent teamed up with the cold case unit and criminologist at the OSBI Forensic Science Center. They submitted DNA evidence to Parabon Nano Labs for testing, and by April 2021, they had results. Upon reviewing the results, the OSBI team pursued their leads right back to Meonia Michelle Allen. On June 15, 2022, an OSBI agent met with Allen at the Durant Police Department, and she agreed to submit DNA samples to determine if she was Baby Doe's biological mother. However, they wouldn't need the DNA results because about 20 minutes into the interview, she admitted the baby was hers and admitted to killing him after he was born and burying him in the backyard. At the time of Baby Doe's death, Allen worked at a daycare center and Valerie Brock was her boss, the woman that discovered the baby in her backyard, and mother of Allen's boyfriend at the time. She allegedly said that she did not tell anyone about her pregnancy, the delivery, or the baby's alleged murder. The court document states that on December 7, 1993, Allen said she had spent the night at Brock's home along with her boyfriend, his son, and her daughter. During the early morning hours of December 8, she had a physical altercation which caused her to go into labor unexpectedly at Brock's home and gave birth in a barn on the property. She said she carried the newborn to the house after his birth and laid him on a couch inside. She retrieved a weapon from the house and carried him behind the well house. Later that morning, Brock noticed what she thought was a doll in her backyard. But when she walked outside to retrieve the toy, she realized it was a newborn baby. Investigators had originally learned that Allen had spent the night at Brock's home, so they interviewed her on December 17th, nine days after the homicide. She told detectives she had never seen a pregnant woman at the house. She initially claimed the baby had been stillborn, but a few days later, in a follow-up interview, Allen was shown the baby's autopsy report, proving that this was not true. At that point, Allen allegedly confessed to ending his life with a knife. She said she had intended to have baby Doe at the hospital and put it up for adoption after its birth. Allen was booked into the Choctaw County Detention Center and is being held without bond, and Baby Doe can now be properly laid to rest, and his killer will now be held accountable. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.